Well, welcome back to the Rob Manor Show, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, whew, it's been a long time. Uh, we were going to take a quick break after the Hurricane Ida evacuation, uh, but it's turned into uh, about three months. So we are so happy to be back live with you all, and we've got a great guest today. Uh, there is uh, so much going on in our country, and we really, really have to talk about it every single day and, and develop action plans every single day. And that's why I'm excited to have our guests on today. You know, this, the title of the show today is the, is the Parents Fight in Virginia Public Schools, the Beginning of the End for Critical Race Theory and Other Woke Policies. You know, the phrase that uh, once uh, gubernatorial candidate Terry McAuliffe used that got started all this really was, quote, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Uh, and that lit the fires, causing his loss in the governor's race in Virginia this year. And you would think that the federal government has no role in local school administration, but you would think wrong under the Biden regime. Listen, listen to this from the Family Foundation, quote, powerful elites aren't just trying to minimize the role of parents. Now, real efforts are really actually underway to criminalize dissent. Many people don't know yet, but those of us that are activists know that on September 29th, the National School Board Association wrote a letter to President Biden calling on the administration to classify these heinous actions by parents as the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes. But there weren't any specific instances cited because there were no hate crimes or domestic violence ever committed, not one. Don't believe it if the lamestream propaganda media shows you something that they say is some kind of act of terrorism by a parent at a school board. It's not. It's usually because parents are pissed off. And I'm using tough words. You know that I use language. And none of it's been reported. It's beyond the pale to investigate and treat parents like terrorists and enemies when it's the parents who pay the taxes and the school board works for. What's even worse is the Secretary of Education was in a Senate hearing and would not agree to a senator's comment that parents are the primary stakeholder in a child's education. Come on, folks. That's ridiculous. It's unacceptable, and we are going to stop that type of thinking in the government of the United States. We're going to run every one of them out through elections or through pressure, and that's what we're going to do because they're not all elected. Have you noticed the really bad actors aren't the ones that are usually elected? It's the permanent bureaucrats or the political appointees that think they can do whatever they want with the government of the United States, and they are not the people of the United States who that government answers to. And we will get our answers and we will take action. And that's why I'm really, really excited to have our guest today on. He's one of these Americans that are willing to stand up and challenge this federal regime. He believes in the promises of our founding fathers. He fights against critical race theory in our schools and wants our children to be safe from sexual assault and walks the talk. Loudoun County School Board Member and Congressional Candidate, Mr. John Beatty. Sir, 
Welcome to the Rob Manus Show. We are so glad that you agreed to come on the show with us because, you know, snippets on Fox News or, or Fox Business or any of the other networks uh, just don't give some, uh, a crowd long enough to delve into the, the deep parts of the subject. And, and for you guys that are watching, uh, the chat uh, is up again, uh, as you know. And for John, we appreciate you being here again. Uh, uh, our viewers like to ask questions, and uh, we do get to some questions sometimes, and we'll give you that opportunity, and we'll put the question up on the screen when we do that. How are you, John? And welcome to the Rob Mina Show. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. I'm doing really well. I'm excited that uh, everything went well in Virginia um, in the recent election, and I'm, I know parents are, are fired up just as much as they were before the election to keep that momentum going. Yeah, it's great. Uh, we really got to build on that momentum. Uh, and, and you know, what's really, really awesome about it is, is the so-called smart people up in the top. They think this is about Republicans and Democrats, but, but it, it was not, was it? No, I think it's, it's parents from all stripes, parents of, of any creed or color, you know, they realize that their child's education is the most important thing. And they're willing to come to school board meetings week in and week out and fight and, yeah. and let their, their representatives know what they want. And it's great to see that represented at the ballot box too. Oh, it, it absolutely is. And it really warms my heart. I, I've run for office several times and, uh, and uh, served 30 something years in the military, John. And, and one of the most frustrating things for me is uh, I get accused of, I mean, I've been accused of everything from carpetbagger to rhino to extremist on the right uh, uh, and everything in uh, the uh, Republican. Uh, I wasn't even in Washington, D.C., thankfully. I wasn't able to be there on January 6th, but I'm sure they'd be calling me a domestic terrorist uh, uh, in a serious way that I've been there. Uh, uh, but it's not about that. This is about the reality that's that's hitting home for parents uh, and children. Uh, and, and these are real Americans that still believe in the country. Let me ask you, start off with asking you to, uh, am I right? Uh, is this the beginning of the end for woke policies and, and critical race theory and those kinds of things, do you think? I think so. I think the biggest thing is there's a lot of great literature out there that helps explain these issues. And I know it's, you know, it's been, a, um, it's been a response for the past couple of years, but it's really come to the forefront. Like there's uh, this author, James Lindsay, who's written a, num written a number of books. And I, I discovered him last summer uh, as I was embroiled in all this equity controversy in our school district. And it's really great to have someone like Dr. Lindsay who can go through the literature, show the historical artifacts behind everything. You know, this is stuff from the 70s, really, that's just coming to the forefront. And he's able to break it down in such a way that you can understand these issues, that you can really uh, parse them, and you can call them out and, and fight back when you see them in the, in the classrooms. And I think that's what's happening right now is we've got this ability to recognize the material we're able to push through the gaslighting that we see and we're able to really start to make some big changes in uh at the beginning of who's going to make up the school boards and then eventually how our children learn and what they learn yeah this, you know you know this, these these are these are things that uh that, that nobody should really be surprised about uh, the, 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 the board members, especially, right? Your board member on the Loudoun County School Board, uh, surely they're not surprised that the parents get fed up with this, right? 
You know, I don't know. I mean, I'm not surprised. And I, I knew this back in 2019 when the election didn't go the way for a lot of people. And I won in a, in a really tough election, a big blue wave in Loudoun County. And I mm-hmm. recognized that they were starting to put these policies in place um, with the sexually explicit materials during that campaign. And to see the beginnings of a parents movement, even back in 2019, where the parents are realizing that there is a material, there are concepts, and basically there are the parents are being boxed out and pushed out of their child's education in such a way that they are getting taught things that uh, you know they wouldn't be taught at home that would go into a family life education curriculum. And they're basically they're be, trying to be removed from the process of teaching their children, you know. And I think you mentioned something about uh, parents as the primary educators. It's incredibly important that we recognize that because I think every parent does at the end of the day. And there that, you know, it starts in 2019. And then with the pandemic and the failure of school districts across the country to not open, when really you could have, you could saw it in Europe. And I, you know, I work at a private school where we were able to figure it out for the 20, uh, 2020 school year. And we were able to realize that, you know, there's mitigation techniques. And at the end of the day, the kids are going to be okay. And it's so much more important that they're in their classrooms with their peers, learning in person. Otherwise, you're going to, uh, you're going to have huge learning loss. And in Loudoun County, we just saw that at our one of our most recent meetings, they pre- prepared this presentation and they showed these SOL scores in, in Virginia. That's a standards of learning this statewide test. And throughout the state, but especially in Loudoun County, our children suffered and their scores um, went down by a lot. And we just saw the fact that uh, our parents, you know, they, they realized that their kids were getting shortchanged in this past year. Yeah, we were, my family was very fortunate. Uh, we have five children. Our youngest is still at home, uh, but I started homeschooling him when he went into the seventh grade. He's slightly autistic. Uh, so we wanted to do that, but I use a curriculum kit from a, a school called Abeka, A-B-E-K-A folks, if you're watching this and you're interested in homeschool. Uh, and so we were already doing it. The, the, uh, the, the pandemic, we just, you know, wa- waited r- right through all that stuff, uh, had no problems at office. I mean, it's me and him basically, uh, doing school. Uh, and it's, there are great curriculums out there. I just threw out the one I use because it really works well for us. It's very, it's a Christian based curriculum and, and I control, uh, what, not what he sees and everything, uh, in a sense of, uh, censoring it. But, but if we want to talk about tough subjects, I mean, I'm there to do it and we do it through the lens of our faith, which is, happens to be Christianity. And, and we found the, uh, a curriculum to be able to do that. And, and it's not difficult to do. You don't even have to be a college graduate to do homeschooling folks. Uh, uh, all it takes is energetic uh, uh, parents that uh, want their children to learn right. And that's one, that's not the only step, but that's one easy action step that where we can you know, head off some of this stuff. But I want our public schools to work too. I'm a product of public schools. I didn't go to any private school or any of that uh, when I was a kid. And, and uh, uh, and that's why I support folks like you, John, running for office. Uh, uh, let me let me ask you this: uh, why, why did the school board once the parents were on to this critical race theory stuff and how it was being taught in the curriculum and saw it? They went to the school school board and said, "Stop doing this," and the school board denied that it was being done. I mean, we've seen the denials of CRT 
being used in public schools all the way up to uh, the secretary of education at this point. Uh, but initially the board said, no, 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 we're not doing that. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, it's not a good thing for an elected official to tell a voter you're wrong. We're really not doing that when they've got the facts. Why did they Yeah, do that? you know, it's so ideologically driven, all this stuff. And, you know, you can call it out and you can say, well, look, look you're, you're, you may say that it's not cult critical race theory. But when you look at the facts of what books are being presented to teachers for them to, to read and to build their curriculum off with material like the Ibrahim Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist mm -hmm. in Loudoun County. Every single teacher is encouraged to read that. They're encouraged to read Robin DeAngelo's book, uh, White Fragility. Uh, this school system represent, uh, recommends that they use the Southern Poverty Law Centers Learning for Justice or Teaching Tolerance Resources. You know, the, the names change because they realize that uh, the brand uh, gets tarnished and they got to find another name for it. But for the, you know, there's no critical race theory class for a first grader. Like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll call it a spade a spade. And so mm -hmm. what they do is they take these concepts and they build them into the curriculum and they, they say equity has to be in, in every single aspect. And so they really, they wrap it around. And so, and you see this in Virginia with the change of the math curriculum. And they basically decided to uh, tweak the standards and really lower the standards so that you're, it's harder for a kid to get advanced math classes and they're gonna get buried in these sort of general math classes. And then they're gonna use this individualized learning techniques. And what they're, they're doing is kind of taking opportunities away because you're, you don't have the peer pressure that you would have in a normal classroom situation where you're in an advanced math class and perhaps you're struggling, but you're going to work hard and you're going to try to keep up with your peers. And when you're in a homogenous classroom where you don't know what the other kids are doing and, you know, since everything is kind of based on the progress you make and such, you know, you getting a, a 80 or something on a test where it's harder questions and you've got a peer who gets an A on a test that's easier questions you know, you're going to be discouraged and that's going to make you even not want to excel in those situations. And that's all in the name of, of trying to juice up the scores and have equal outcomes for everyone, regardless of, of what goes into it. And it sounds like, I mean, it's very evident that all that's going to do is, is uh, I'm going to use a crass term. Look, I'm a military guy. I, I like being direct. That uh, it's just going to dumb everybody down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, that's what I'm hearing when I hear, People talk about this in, in the, from a technical perspective uh, of what's going to happen with the scores and uh, the, the populations in the schools and the grades and everything. Everybody's going to so. be dumbed down, right? Yeah, it, it takes away opportunities from people, really. And in, in, in uh, the Northern Virginia area, we have this magnet school called Thomas Jefferson. And mm. the Fairfax County, which is the neighboring jurisdiction, they changed the whole way to get into that. And it's basically a lottery now rather than a merit-based system. And so I think one fear that the parents have is, A, you're taking away opportunities from students who've worked hard and perhaps um, merit the opportunity to get into that school. But then I, I think the other injustice is that you're putting students in a situation where they may not be as prepared as they need to be. Like, you know, I, you know, I went to Virginia Tech and it was a tough program, but I don't know if I would have survived at a place like MIT or something. So mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, you go to the right school at the right level which you're, that you're at. And I think if you're putting kids in situations where it's a high stress environment, where they need to be at the top of their game all the time. And they don't have those virtues developed so far that the habits of study and the habits of learning, you know, they're going to suffer because they're going to get discouraged and they're not going to do as well. And now, you know, what, instead of, of 
trying to, you know, get them some kind of name brand recognition from going to a school. You're doing them a great disservice by not allowing them to succeed uh, to the best of their abilities, not to, you know, the abilities of, of, the, of the top. And, and, and have parents challenged the, the board in their public meetings about this issue? I haven't seen a whole lot of reporting on that particular issue from a parent's perspective. I have seen it uh, and I'm aware of the effort that's going on. But have parents in Loudoun County taken that one on? It's parents mostly in Fairfax, um, but in Loudoun County, the same. It's just they're really upset because they're, you're taking away these opportunities. And uh, in, in Loudoun County, we don't have Thomas Jefferson, but we have a similar program where we changed the school board. I, I didn't support this. I voted against these changes, but basically to remove a lot of the qualifications and to lower the standards to get into these um, top pro STEM programs, top art programs. And again, you're, you're, and this is an attempt to, to get sort of an equal racial outcome. And the irony of course, is that it, uh, you know, fewer minorities got in and more white students got in when you, when you make these, uh, you change these parameters and try to, to, to engineer the different races to get in. So the whole plan, I think, backfired in that regard. And mm -hmm. I think it, again, you're taking spots away from students who deserve to be there be just because of the color of their skin, which is uh, racist and, and awful. Yeah, it, it's a terrible, it's, it's a terrible thing. You know, I went to Harvard University for a master's degree program and they, they've been into the whole diversity equity thing for a long, long time. And one of the things that I noticed is that uh, MIT, which is part of the system up there, uh, their students were generally white and Asian uh, and, uh, and some Hispanic, but very few, uh, definitely not up to the 13% average of the American population. Uh, black people were in that program, uh, but they were in all of the all of the the liberal arts programs uh, not associated with science, uh, which was fine. But uh, what that told me, just anecdotally looking at it, is that uh, those folks weren't prepared for that level of academic structure when it comes to things like STEM, uh, and they wouldn't be able to compete even if they gave them that. And it also concerned me that some folks were in over their head, uh, even in the liberal arts programs, because it's a very challenging place to go to school uh, up there. Uh, I mean, it's not alone. There are many, many other schools. So even back in the mid 90s, uh, uh, you could see that it was it, the potential for the uh, for the negative effects, especially on the population that you want to help uh, get ahead you know, that you think you want to help get ahead in your social science experiment, uh, it, it inevitably ends up breaking it uh, down. I mean, it's just like American national policy that has destroyed the black family since the 1930s. Uh, and, and, then, and then we wonder why uh, there's such a high crime incidence rate amongst young black men uh, and incarcerate, high incarceration rates and those kind of things. Well, when we destroy the family, uh, you can see it when families are not destroyed. It works. Doesn't matter what your skin color is, but when you have a concerted effort from a policy perspective that has a uh, consequence like that, it's just really atrocious. I hope we can get that headed off and, and not let that happen. Uh, my family and I were in Fairfax County in the 2000s uh, when I was working at the Pentagon, and uh, the Thomas Jefferson School and was widely well known uh, mm -hmm. for its. Uh, efforts and and really they just took really highly 
intelligent kids that were willing to work hard and it didn't matter what their skin color was. It yeah, really didn't because I've been to that school. I think the focus is on the wrong area too. Like it's not trying to juice admissions numbers. I think you really need to go down to like the kindergarten or first grade level and really focus on making sure the kids are learning how to read, that they're getting a lot of, of books to read, that they're getting a lot of opportunities because that's the foundational level that's going to fix all these problems downstream. And I think if you don't focus on that, you know, that's the grave disservice. So that's one thing yeah. we're trying to work on on the, the Loudoun County School Board is fixing liter literacy at the young age. And then you know, it's a long process, but I think that's how you solve these bigger issues rather than trying to social engineer admissions tests or, or programs like that. Yeah, what do you guys see uh, from a literacy rate perspectives across uh, different demographics in your area? Obviously, you've seen it. You've seen the numbers and the data there that shows you that you've got, you've got a lot of work to do from a literacy perspective. Correct? Yeah, and a lot of the discussion is actually on the curriculum that's being involved. So, in our area, I believe English language learners, so people who who don't have English as a native language, they're not. Uh, they're kind of at the bottom. And so the the effort that has gone into teaching them is this programs where you're trying to teach sight words and you're trying to mm -hmm. focus on memorizing words, which I think is really tough if you if English is not your first language to go out and memorize and try to get the pronunciation right. And I think the push that I've seen in the literature is to go to more of a phonics based system where you're sounding out the words. I mean, like the I think this would have hooked on phonics or, you know, mm -hmm. things that they figured out a long time ago, I think where they're rediscovering and I, I think that's a, a great um, initiative to, to go back to teaching based on sounds because that's, you know, that's what kids are used to. Like, you, you know, you mm -hmm. hear from your parents, you hear from your family members and friends, and then to sort of train, translate that to the, the letters on the page. I think that's the best way to, to get the kids a, a broad vocabulary, not just learning very focused, uh, focused words that, that you have to memorize. Yeah, I hate to keep talking about my youngest son. Uh, if he ever sees this, he's going to go, wow, Dad, thanks. Uh, but, you know, he was our first child that did the sight word thing. Mm -hmm. It was a disaster for him. Absolute disaster. I was like, throw that out. We're just going to teach him to sound out the letters and the, uh, and the words, uh, uh, you know, and see spot run and, uh, and those kind of things. Uh, and, and, and we got him back on track. But the sight word thing was a total disaster for him. Uh, and he, he, he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it uh, with his uh, disability and everything. And, but he could do the phonics very, very easily. Uh, and uh, I appreciate you guys doing that. The uh, what? Let's transition from the race thing over to the sexual uh, mm -hmm. information. You mentioned it earlier, John. But, uh, you know, one of the questions I get all the time, and, I, and I'm not in Latin County, so I'm not on the board, and I don't really – communicate directly with parents that are there right now. And, but wh why did the, uh, why did the school board fail to acknowledge the sexual assault of the young lady in the girl's bathroom by a, a male wearing a skirt when they were questioned directly by parents about it? Why, why, why did they do that? Well, I don't when, you're, when you're in a situation like this, um, the way it works is that you, you know, you on the school board, you, you kind of, you're, you're creating policies and setting the budget and you really, you give the superintendent and his staff sort of the latitude to run the right. schools and to do the day-to-day -day operations. And so really it's a failure on, on sort of the, the staff level to, to allow things like that happen um, because they're responsible for, for the discipline day-to-day -day 
for monitoring the, the schools and such. And I, th you know, I think that, um, you know, part of the push to, like in Loudoun County, we've got this new policy, 8040, which is to allow biological males, it's a transgender policy, allows biological males into female rooms. And around the same time of these assaults, there was a lot of push um, to, to put this policy into place. And, you know, the way I look at the whole situation, it seems like the administration was working really hard not to let this thing come to light so that they could push this policy. Because if it really had, it, we knew all the, if we had known all the details as they were happening, I think, you know, there's no way it would have passed and it, uh, it would have, you know, we would have looked back at it and, and not allowed it at all. But um, I think if you look at the, the whole story, I think there was a, a concerted effort to really push through this transgender policy at the time. So it was a cover up then, and the parents were justified in being angry about it, especially the young lady's parents. Yeah, I think anyone's justified when when things like this happen. And I think when you've got policies in place like we have now that allow those situations to happen or to, to easier to happen, that's a that's a true tragedy. And so I think the anger about it is is uh, just and it's something that, you know, we've got this investigation going on. And I believe the attorney general is going to start an investigation, too, once he takes office. And we really need those to figure out uh, what goes wrong so that that the, we can put in, you know, correct these policies and make sure that everything happens. Um, and I, I think part of the challenge, of course, is when you're doing these investigations, you need to make sure that you get all the details. And so as you, you know, you as a school board member, as you're learning the details and stuff, you really have to be patient and, and let the process go. But you also you got to trust the administration to do the right thing. And I think it's it's obvious that a lot of wrong things happen throughout this. And that's where we need to fix those in the school system. Well, it sounds like you know, let me clarify what I think I just heard from you a, a few minutes ago, and that is that the administration cover, covered it uh, and weren't honest with the school board, the elected school board members uh, about this issue and that they were having issues because they wanted this policy in place. Is that correct? These yes. Non-elected staff and the, and the superintendent of schools. Yes. Correct? Yes. So the school board president said, we haven't had this happen, even though emails, I think were there, there were some emails to that president uh, found by FOIA that actually gave them that information. Uh, but none of the school board members knew about it. Uh, but uh, so, so that, what is the plan to rid the school system of these administrators that did the wrong thing? I think at the very at the end of the day, it goes back to elections. You need a school board that's willing to uh, to have a majority vote on these issues. And you know, being a, a, a minority on the board, I I can't make a lot of those decisions. And uh, you know, I'm I'm happy to vote no on many things. But I think you really need to parents need to push for uh, finding candidates in the elections that come up that they know they can trust, that they know they're solid on their votes, um, mm -hmm. and that will are willing to to make those changes because. If you've got a divided board, if you've got a board that even supports some of these things, uh, like the, the sexually explicit books have been in the classroom since before the election in 2019, and they're still there. And so you've got a majority in the board that supports them and wants them in there. Mm -hmm. And you know they're not going to they're not going to direct staff, and staff the staff that put them in there are happy to keep them in there as long as they've got the support of the school board. So really, it comes down to elections, and it comes down to organizing and getting candidates in there. That are going to to fight and 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 enough of those candidates that you can actually have a a, a solid vote on there to, to make a difference. 
And really candidates that aren't like you, I mean, you're lucky to be on the board, but candidates that, that have been, become activists uh, alongside their, their fellow parents in this effort uh, that can be elected in those areas where you might not be able to be elected, they need to be recruited and stand up and run for office. Is there a effort, an organized effort in Loudoun County to do that? Yeah, I've talked to a lot of people that are interested in running for the school board in Loudoun County, uh, and, and I'm always encouraging people. And yes, there's a, a effort underway to figure out um, interest, you know, and and make sure that they've got the the time that they can dedicate to this, and um, just figure out who can who best represent those districts all throughout the county, and uh, that that way, you, you know. Come November 2023, you'll have a board on uh, that uh, will hopefully vote these things down, hopefully change the course of the public education in, in our county and counties all across the country. One more question about this, and I think you said it, but I, I might have missed it in, in that. Who had, who, what entity has hiring and firing authority over the staff and the superintendent of schools in Loudoun County? The, for at least in Loudoun and, and Virginia, um, it's the superintendent is hired by the school board and that's a majority vote. Um, and then everyone below the superintendent gets hired and fired by the superintendent. And so the, the goal of the school board is really an oversight to make sure that the superintendent is trying to do the best that they can for the whole county. And uh, that is hiring and firing his own staff or her own staff. And then the school board's job is really to dictate how the superintendent runs uh, the, the school on a sort of a general level. Well, covering for boys in skirts that rape girls in girls' bathrooms in a public school uh, is not doing the right thing or even trying to. There's your issue parents that are going to run for office. Is uh, we, You guys got to run. Plea, I'm pleading with you to run for office. Take that school board, fire that superintendent, and clean that staff out uh, because uh, this can't continue. And it is continuing even though we've had some su success with the elections. And as John said, uh, you know, I mean, he's the minority on the board, so he doesn't get a lot of say except for the highlight issues and, and try to say what the best thing to do is. We need a majority on the board. And when I say we, we American parents that uh, are interested in our kids and not interested in political stuff. As a matter of fact, one of the comments uh, is uh, uh, that I had was addressing that very issue that there should not be any political tags in school in schools, nobody should be talking about Democrats, Republicans, or uh, progressivism and those kind of things. They should be talking about teaching kids uh, what they need to know uh, and not what to think, but how to think, as a certain newly elected uh, Virginia governor said. And that's what this education is for. But you're, you're, you're standing up, John, and you're going to take on the federal regime uh, because obviously you've seen what's going on at the federal level. Uh, you're probably intimately aware with the, the uh, overreach of the education department, which uh, I ran on that as a political platform that it should be dissolved at the federal level. It's not necessary to cause it more harm than good for our kids uh, in our public schools. Uh, uh, but, but you're interested in many other things. You mentioned you have an IT background. Uh, so what seat are you running for at the federal level and how can folks find out more about you? You got a website you can talk about. Sure. I'm running for Congress in Virginia's 10th congressional district. And what, what really made me want to run is that I, I sit on the school board and I realize that 
these local issues, the school closures, the the, the transgender policies and, and uh, the sexually explicit materials, kind of a lot of the, the things that are happening in schools that are driving parents crazy, causing them to come to public comment for 18 straight months. They're really national issues. And I don't think there's enough uh, people speaking about them nationally, especially in Congress. Uh, and it's, you know, it's critical race theory. It's uh, this transgenderism. It's uh, national organizations like teachers unions that are sort of dictating what happens at the local level because they influence an organization like the CDC. And the CDC then puts out guidelines that make it harder for schools to operate with the, with the quote guidance that's given to them. So, it, um, and I've got more information on my website, uh, baityforus.com. And that's that's really what it comes down to for me. It's it's these local issues that I've I realized are just national issues that that no one that aren't getting enough talking about, and they're not being worked on in Congress. Um, and then on the technology side, so I think we see the impact of of big tech, and um, you know they're they're taking websites down, they're delisting people, shadow banning people, and I think there's a lot of work in Congress to try and put regulations in place. But I, I think we as conservatives need to look at that and say, like, maybe that's not the best way. It's, let's let the free market sort of dictate what's better and allow for more companies to grow and more opportunities for alternate services to rise uh, outside the scope of these these big companies and then compete with them and and hopefully, you know, take them down or just provide a, some kind of competition because it's, it's free market competition that at the end of the day is going to provide the best services and is going to keep companies honest. Yeah, that's one of the things I really wanted to ask you specifically about. I'm glad you went there on the IT perspective, since since you, you talk about it on your website a little bit. But you're you are a, a professional in that field. What type of approach to policy from a legislative perspective should we be looking at? I mean, there's, in my opinion, things like Section 230 need to be dismantled uh, as much as possible uh, and and make the internet more like the airwaves quite frankly, where, you know, uh, if I'm a political candidate and I go to buy an ad, I can't be really turned away, uh, uh, except for some very specific reasons about the ad. Uh, and, uh, and that's not true. You know? Yes, yeah, so I look at 230 is, is really about content that's generated by people on the platform, not really advertisers. So I, I think those are kind of different. I think that if you were to appeal something like t Section 230, you're actually going to make it harder for new companies to come about because not only do they need a, a strong team of developers, like I, you know, my background's in computer science. I worked at a number of startups. Um, one of the startups was really interesting. It was this company called Taxi Magic, mm -hmm. and uh, we competed directly with Uber, and which you you may have heard about. And you know, it was it was amazing yeah. to see a company like Uber come up and to really beat down um, the regulatory bodies that were that were entrenching these monopolistic markets around every city you know these taxi companies had monopolies and uber was able to provide a, a tremendous service and to and to build a loyal following of customers and they were able to to get to to build this this marketplace now that that is a comp competitive and is actually changing a lot of the landscape so i think i think looking at the regulatory framework i think a little bit of more i'm more on the the less regulation side because that's how you're going to get companies that try new things that can and solve um, new problems. And if you appeal something like Section 230, which all these big companies had that protection, if you remove a protection like that, which really just means that they're not liable for what people say on their platform. If you remove that liability now, every time you post something on whatever new social network comes out, a lawyer's got to go through and it's got to 
double check and triple check what you say and make sure that the company itself that's posting it isn't going to be liable. And that's just going to slow down innovation and slow down uh, the, the changes and, and improvements in, in our lives. So I, I think that's kind of the angle to take out of that. We need to make sure that we're um, we're allowing new companies to flourish and not entrenching these big behemoths and, and letting them uh, take over and, and stay in power or, you know, not cede their power to someone else. Because these things change all the time. Like if you look at at Microsoft in the 90s, you know, they were taken over um, basically by Google uh, and uh, Google that was eventually superseded by Apple with the iPhone. So like there's there's a natural flow to these um, technological innovations and people are always trying new things. And if you had rules in place where Google had to make sure that, that their search results would met all the legal comp uh, com compliance, there's no way they would have been able to provide a, a tremendous search engine and you would have kind of been mired and in stagnation. So that, that's kind of my thought on it. And then um, you mentioned something about political advertising and that's kind of its own minefield uh, that I'm experiencing where you, you try to run an ad and you got to go and get it uh, approved by a bunch of different play people. And I, like, that's the that's the problem right now is um, you've got a lot of pressure on these companies that they don't want to be re regulated. So they're kind of they're actually kowtowing to political pressure and sort of self-censoring and, and making it harder for someone who doesn't have as much uh, capital or uh, connections to really use these platforms like you were able to uh, five, 10 years ago. Well, that's my, my issue with, uh, with law like Section 230 is that the big tech guys are able to hide behind it. Uh, I have no issue with what it's supposed to do. My issue is that the courts and the, the legal system allows them to hide behind it. Look, I run a website that I made a news website called robmanis.com in March of uh, last year. And by September, we were at 800,000 page views per month with a goal of a million by December 2020. But on October 1st, 2020, Facebook suppressed our website and I can't get more than 25,000 page views per month. Period. They suppressed it. You can see it on the graphs and everything. And when you go to an attorney, they go, well, they're all protected there. Nobody's going to take the case on them because they can't, we can't do anything about it. And, and, you know, my company invested six figures in building this audience on Facebook. But so where's the, where's the recourse for the harm caused to my little company uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that needs to be addressed with these big behemoths that have, that have become that uh, when they're allowed to just stomp you out? Yeah, I think that goes back to the need for other social networks that can compete with them. And I, I think that, um, you know, it's really unfortunate that Facebook and, and is able to basically shadow ban you and make it harder to get traffic, that mm -hmm. Google is able to use their algorithmic results to kind of bury you down there. So I think that's where there's opportunities for other companies to come along and try to provide alternatives. And, um, you know, they're, they're just not going to be able to do that if they if they don't have their those same legal protections that those behemoths had uh, when they were getting started. I, I think that's kind of, it's that sort of conservative mindset of, a, of an equal playing field in there. Um, you know, that they, they were able to use these these supports to get going. And I think that the companies now, you know, need similar supports in order um, to be able to compete fairly and squarely on that. Well, unfortunately, I'm a conservative, uh, uh, but I'm also a common sense kind of guy. And it sure looks like to me that the up and coming companies need the protection now and the big companies no longer need any protection. Uh, and uh, we've got to make the internet like the airwaves.
license, which are free. I mean, I can go out and, and uh, get a license to run a radio station uh, and, uh, you know, and there's certain rules that go with it, but I can't be stopped from running it because of my, what I say politically on it. And that's what's happening. That's what happened. Sure, that's sure. what no, people that's, are clamoring for. Yeah, no, that's a great that's a great analogy. And I think going back to that radio station, like your website is that radio station. And uh, you know, the the mm-hmm. sort of the the Facebook is is not your website in that state. They're some kind of intermediary that that is causing that issue. So yeah, I think you know, having your own properties and being able to to build up an audience on your own that you you are uh, have a direct connection to, I think that's the that's just one of the answers to that. Yeah, I mean, uh, if I could move my audience to a new platform, I would do it in a heartbeat. I would do it in a heartbeat, uh, especially one that doesn't censor political speech because it's really harming the country because folks know that this is happening. Uh, You know, I don't know if you saw this week that uh, all of the independent commenters that were using live streams for the Rittenhouse trial were all shut down yesterday. Uh, as the uh, closing arguments were continuing for a certain period of time uh, by YouTube and all, and the big the big guys, and uh, that's just suppressing the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, suppre- that's suppressing facts right there, and that's that's a problem. That uh, I think uh, I'm not a big like I said I'm not a big believer in regulations either, but at some point. We've got to draw a line in the sand, and at the federal level, the Congress is the one that's, that's got to do that, and we've got to figure that out, uh, what the right thing to do is. Uh, uh, and if it's less regulation, well, by all means, let's let's cut those regulations that are caught, that are enabling this type of behavior uh, so that I can be free again. And, and I think there are millions of Americans that make that same statement out there. Yeah, and one of the challenges, the algorithms that, that sort of bubble content up, and so you, you almost not only do they suppress content, but they kind of bubble content that they think is going to, to make you upset and angry. And so they're they're purposely driving engagement and, and trying to, to get people uh, to, to think negatively about other people. And that, you know, that's also mm-hmm. driving a huge wedge in civil discourse where all you read on, on social media or on YouTube is kind of negative things about other people. And you start to lose, uh, you know, that, you know, you start to lose uh, connections with your peers and your, your societies. And, and that's, uh, that's another one of those problems that they're, they're, bring in yeah absolutely so so what other uh tell, tell folks john uh, what what are your other policy positions that you've come up with so far when is the primary uh, uh, i assume you're gonna have a primary challenger and the general dates and those kinds of things yeah so in virginia we're still in the middle of this line redrawing uh so going back to bipartisan squabbling the um Virginia has this bipartisan redistricting commission that's composed of eight Democrats and eight Republicans, and uh, half the members are elected officials, half the members are citizens. And um, it was supposed to draw these lines and then COVID delayed the numbers and stuff. And the commission basically blew up because they couldn't come to any kind of compromise uh, in sort of figuring out a way to make the lines work. And now it's been passed to the Virginia Supreme Court and there's there's a now squabbling about who's going to draw the maps with the Virginia Supreme Court. So um, I'm, I'm fairly confident that the 10th is going to be Loudoun County and, and little bits of surrounding parts just because of, of where it is now. And, you know, I assume they're not going to move around too much. So we're I'm waiting on that at the moment. And then I imagine there'll be a convention like there was in 2020. And that'll probably be in May or June, depending on, on what the chair sets for that. 
Um, and you know, some of the other issues that are that are incredibly important to me, obviously. So education, we talked about technology. Um, on the education front, sort of having a, a way for parents to pay for their schools if, if the public system isn't working for them. So that's, uh, you know, scholarships or federal dollars that can go and help them fund those those tuitions outside of the public school system, uh, tax credits for parents trying to uh, provide a better education for their kids. Um, so that's, you know, helping to cover uh, book costs, things like that. Um, you know, the pro-life issue is incredibly important to me. I'm 100% pro-life. And so I would like to see us work, you know, as, as much as we can towards protecting as many lives as possible. And uh, I think that starts in the womb and obviously promoting uh, natural death and allowing people to have dignity in their, their later lives. Um, I think another issue that I saw in sort of my work is trying to uh, build these startup companies, every part of them is just the, the crazy cost for healthcare. Um, so for example, mm -hmm. uh, when I had just two kids and I was trying to get this app company off the ground, I had a, a friend of mine and we, we incorporated an LLC. We got a contract to build an app. We both quit our jobs and we were, you know, looking to, um, to pay for the healthcare for our, for our families. And for just two, uh, two men with two small families, it would have been thousands of dollars a month in healthcare costs. So I think that's an area that, you know, I, I know that the Democrats try to own this issue and they, they want to fund it with a single payer, payer option. But I think that's one area where we can try to work and cut regulatory tape and try to find more competition so that, the, that we can help lower the cost for that. Because if you look at like in, in the North Virginia area, there's only a couple hospital chains really where the, it's one company that controls uh, the hospitals. And so you don't really have even competition in that area. Mm -hmm. And then you, because the, they're the pr primary employers for a lot of healthcare workers, they're going to be able to, to kind of set the costs and to set the pricing. And then they, they negotiate these backroom deals with insurance companies. And so I think that's one area where we can, we need to work to break open that kind of oligopoly, oligopoly and try to lower costs so that you can, again, drive innovation, have uh, support small businesses and really, and, and really grow the economy in, in a more organic way. That's going to benefit, benefit everyone rather than just uh, those who can afford lobbyists and, and armies of lawyers to, to cut through the red tape. Yeah. I mean, isn't that, that, that consolidation of power and wealth in the single or, or one or two companies in the hospitalization area, a, a product of Obamacare too. I mean, it's driving mm -hmm. that uh, and it's driving doctors to actually be employees of the hospitals instead of having their practice and being able to practice in a hospital. Is that, is that an accurate view of that? Uh, and, and that leads me to my next question. You talked about the expense of it and I, I'm with you. Uh, lowering the expense is key, but uh, I want less government control over people's health. You know, I, I ran pandemics as a colonel in 2009 with the flu issue, and we would never have even recommended anything like what you're seeing that's continuing to go on today for a virus that uh, has a 99.9% .9 survival rate for most people. Uh, you know, uh, and for goodness sake, uh, uh, I want to see less government interaction with the healthcare system and much more private. Uh, uh, and I think a lot of people would really like to see that idea uh, be worked on in a serious way. 
instead of the way the political parties have, have approached it over the years. So hopefully you'll take that on. Yeah, I mean, like when you go to the doctor and you get the the bill from them and the, basically the insurance breakdown at the end of the day, yeah. like it's crazy that the, the write-offs and stuff that go into there, like, you know, they'll charge you $100 for kind of an X service. And then the insurance company says, well, we'll write off th- three quarters of that. And then it's $25 is what they pay the doctor and the doctor's fine because somewhere along the line that got negotiated. Like, you know, the, the very fact that a doctor can't, has no incentive to be honest about the real cost for something so that someone could bypass the insurance and per- perhaps pay out of pocket or easily understand and, and get a comparison shop and, mm-hmm. and try to find uh, services that fit their needs. Like, um, I think that's, you know, that's where the, the entrenchment of Obamacare really uh, has let us down because um, I know that there was there was a big push for the public option, and once that kind of evaporated with the uh, I think the Scott Brown election in in uh, Massachusetts, um, they just they, I think that it made it even worse by trying to find um, some kind of some kind of entrenchment of the current system and a couple of of what they thought were were improvements, and so now there's so much so much regulatory tape around it that uh, it you know you you really don't know what you're paying for at the end of the day until uh, maybe months later when you get the final bill uh, and even then it's it's still kind of hidden because you know you're not paying for the full insurance it's your employer that's covering a lot of it and you pay just a little bit so i think try, really trying to bring out those costs so that you can understand mm-hmm. what the market is going on and then you can really that's what allows individuals and the market to kind of kick in and, and make those big big sweeping changes that improve it for everyone yeah, they sure do. I'm glad you're going to tackle that that issue. Uh, uh, you mentioned the Second Amendment, uh, uh, and uh, I want to give you an opportunity to just uh, tell folks where you're at on the Second Amendment, and then a little bit on foreign policy and national security issues uh, before we let you go. Uh, Thank you. I, I appreciate you spending this time with us. So, Second Amendment. I mentioned the Rittenhouse trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I have my thoughts on that, but you know, I mean, we've got a uh, in this country. Uh, we have a right to carry a firearm. Uh, it, uh, yeah, we have some regulation around it. Uh, I'm not convinced that that should have been allowed uh, at this point. And I never thought I'd say that when I retired for the Air Force 10 years ago. Uh, but so where are you at on the Second Amendment? And uh, how are you going to protect those that right and, and all the other liberties that it's supposed to protect, really? Sure. I mean, the, the Second Amendment is a right in the Constitution, so you know I'm going to support that as as best I can. And I think you just bringing up the fact that w- with every right, there's a duty, and so you know every gun owner needs to be re- responsible with their firearms so that tragedies are prevented. But I think that's again because it's an individual um, opportunity to to make their communities better rather than something like a federal regulation or laws that are going to that that's not going to fix that. You know, if you look at states like Illinois where they've got some of the strictest gun control laws, um, you know, they've got some of the highest murder uh, per capita in, in Chicago. So, uh, you know, I'm, I think that we need to we need to protect the Second Amendment as much as possible. And then just, to, you know, remind gun owners their responsibilities and their duties with that right. And and I, I think that the the wisdom of, of something like the Second Amendment goes back to even the revolution and throughout the, the history of the country. Like, you know, no one's going to mess with a country where they know that every single citizen is armed. Uh, I think that's I think that's anecdotally that's why Switzerland was was spared a lot of uh, destruction during the world wars mm-hmm. because every single citizen had a re- had a responsibility to carry a firearm to be trained in it and to be ready um, at the moment's notice to protect their communities and I, I think that's one of the 
that's one of the great strengths of, of the United States is that we've got uh, a, a, an opportunity for citizens to defend themselves uh, in their homes and in their country should the need ever arise. And so I certainly support that as much as possible. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, uh, and I know you know this, but the politicians made primary job is to protect the liberty. Uh, mm -hmm. That's it. And we see a dearth of that uh, with our elected officials today. Part of that protected liberty is foreign policy and national security. Uh, where are you at? Uh, let's pick a, pick one out of the air. The, the issue with China and Taiwan uh, and uh, the current state of America from a military and a national security perspective. Uh, for those of us that are professionals in this, is pretty weak, pretty weak and a dangerous place to be in our opinion. Yeah, I think one of the, the great blessings of the post-World War II order is the, the peace that's been around. And I think that's from having a strong military and, and you know, being able to show it and then thankfully not being able to use it because people understand that they know what's going to what's going to happen. And I think like if you look at what happened in Afghanistan, um, you know, whether or not the the United States should have left just the way that it happened, where it was in the basically the middle of the night and with no support to our allies. I think that was a terrible injustice. And I'm really afraid we're going to we're do something like that to Taiwan. Like we need to support our allies that, that the, you know, in treaties that the Senate has ratified, that we got to respect that constitutional order. And, uh, you know, if the Senate decides that, that someone shouldn't be an ally or someone should be an ally, I think that's the, our country's responsibility to stick with those people uh, through thick and thin and to try and, and help um, the situation. So I think we need to stand by a country like Taiwan. We need to stand by countries like uh, South Korea and protect the peace in, in that region and Japan. And um, because they are close allies and they've been uh, valuable partners um, throughout uh, the, the past half century. You know, I spent two thirds of my 30 plus years uh, during the Cold War and peace through strength. Uh, uh, kept, you know, kept the Soviet Union at bay and eventually led to its downfall, quite frankly, and staying with that policy did that. Uh, uh, and then the third of it has been this uh, forever war policy, which I, for those of us that have fought the war, just think it's absolutely ridiculous. For one, it's a waste of resources and it's weakness. Uh, and I think you just did a good job describing it to why it is weakened us and we're in a precarious position. And I hope that folks like you can get elected to Congress and really help us uh, fix that issue. It's gonna take Thank a lot. It's a big bureaucracy and, and, and a lot of wild ideas out there as you can see from this current president. Well, John, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, where can people find you, especially to find out about your policies, but more importantly, they have to donate to you because you have, you have to raise money. To do you got to raise a lot of money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're trying to raise a, a million dollars better than the year. Yeah. Uh, Baityforus.com is the website and uh, there's a link to donate on there. You can see a clip we had for the Laura Ingram show about parents and trying to support parents in that. And um, yeah, I appreciate you. Thank you, Rob, for having me on. This has been a pleasure. And I uh, thank you everyone for listening. Well, yeah, thank you very much. And, and I want to thank the folks out in the audience for listening. I just put uh, David Garnett's uh, final comment uh, in the chat up. And the parents have every right to have input on their kids' education. That's the way it's got to be. Uh, it's not tradition or anything. It's just the reality, right, John? It's got to yeah. be that way. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a thousands of years tradition. Yeah, it's, it's nothing new. All right, my friend. Thank you very much. I wish you all the luck in the world. And again, thank you so much for your time. It's been very informative and uh, I hope we'll get this out to hundreds of thousands of people. 
especially in the Virginia area of District 10. Uh, and I uh, wish you well. I hope to see you again sometime. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank Bye. you. Well, my friends, uh, that's it for episode 110 of the Rob Manis Show. Again, thank you so much for uh, for uh, uh, being part of the show and asking our guests questions. And don't forget, we're with you for the full hour on Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and we do nightly uh, video editorials uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday. Uh, at 7 p.m. Central or 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, don't forget to catch us there. Uh, we do appreciate that, you. And go buy a my pillow from Mike Lindell. He sponsors us. Uh, you can use ILM6 as your promo code and get 66% off. Until next week, I'm Rob Manis, and I very much appreciate you, and God bless America.